your owner might say, no, you're free, but these children stay here. They said, we have raised these children, they are ours. And so the parents had to basically steal their own children. Many people talked about stealing themselves during slavery because if you belonged to somebody and you escaped, you had stolen yourself in essence. And so after the war, they're having to steal their children. That's Dr. Heather Andrea Williams, history professor from the University of North Carolina. She's part of Looking Over Jordan, African Americans and the Civil War, a documentary which is the subject of our show today. morning. I'm Chris Williams, and this is Fordham Conversations. Our guest today is Clarence Ball, professor in the Gabelli School of Business at Fordham University. He won an Emmy Award for his work as the academic researcher for Looking Over Jordan, African Americans in the Civil War. It's a documentary that aired on Nashville Public Television. It explores what it was like to be a slave during one of the most tumultuous times in American history. Some African Americans fought for the North, while others were stuck on plantations, even after the war was over. We talked about the slave experience during the Civil War, as well as his work on the documentary, and what he found while researching that surprised him. What surprised me is that, as an African-American, I thought I knew a lot about African-American history. And then as we started to look at the research that was out there, um, I realized that I didn't know a fraction of what I thought I knew. And so that was very interesting to me, just on a personal development um, level. I also, as we were studying the war specifically in the state of Tennessee, I didn't realize that there was a battle fought a little north of Memphis called the Battle of Fort Pillow. And um, this is something that, again, is on the editing floor. I didn't make it into the documentary, but it was very interesting to me because the Battle of Fort Pillow, I believe 600 Um, innocent, unarmed African-American women and children were slaughtered by uh, Confederate soldiers. And so it was an impetus for African-Americans to to then join the Union side and to free themselves as slaves. And when they got onto the Union side, a very popular battle cry would be, remember Fort Pillow. And so that, to me, uh, really resonated the most. One of the things the documentary mentions is that religion and music were heavily related to the slave experience. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. If we go back, maybe as far back as the Middle Passages, which the documentary doesn't do, then you'll see that um, African religion is a very call-and-response religion. It is a very outward, transient religion. And so to move into Christianity without a choice... Um, A lot of Africans were trying to find ways to interject what they knew to be a religious experience or a spiritual experience and put that into the religion of Christianity. And I think the best way to do that was through Negro spirituals. And there are, you know, countless Negro spirituals, but there was one that stuck out to me um, that was um, I Got Shoes, you got shoes, all God's children got shoes. When I get to heaven, going to put on my shoes and dance all over God's heaven. And I think that what sounds really simple and almost ignorant is actually um, African Americans declaring, I'm human too. And even though you're denying me rights, I'm just like you are. 
And even though you're denying me rights inside of this um, entity of Christianity, I'm going to find a way to make my name for, make a name for myself. And if I'm going to adopt this religion, then the way for me to adopt it is to embrace, if I can't embrace it here because you're not giving me my rights here, then I'm going to have to embrace it in heaven. When did African-Americans start to adopt Christianity and sort of maybe even establish their own churches and what that was like? From my knowledge, from the research that, that I've done myself, I would say that Christianity is, is an evolved African concept and the concept being Immaculate Conception. If you look into uh, Kemet, or Egypt rather, um, Kemetan um, spirituality, you'll see that in Egypt a lot of the times they look at different gods like Aset and um, Asar and um, they call him Horus, but his real name was Haru, the, the Greeks. And if you look at Christianity and all of the things that happened in the early begin at the beginning of Christianity, you'll see that a lot of that is a regurgitation of 2,000 years ago what was going on in Egypt. So did it actually happen? I think so. I'm a Christian. I have to believe that. But um, is it does it mirror almost exactly what was happening in Egypt on the walls of the Medunetur, of the hieroglyphics, as the Greeks would call it? Yes, it does. How did slaves worship? Did they, did they gather together and sort of hold these impromptu? Because there was no established church for them, right? They, they couldn't go to church, could they? You have to remember, slavery is about a 400-year period. So at the beginning, it was difficult to get people that were right off of the Middle Passage to embrace a God that they had never heard ca called that name before, right? Maybe they called him Oludumare or, you know, Olurun. But they, they had never called him Jesus before. And so that was difficult to him. And then to be forced into calling it something different. And then the, um, the different um, physicalities that went into church in the 1800s and 1700s and 1600s, how they had to ask for permission to go to the bathroom before they could get up in the sanctuary and things like that. It was difficult. And so as slavery moves on, you see that African Americans really start to embrace Christianity, Christianity and very heavily. And I think what they saw was the story of the Israelites and the story of the people that Moses freed. And they saw themselves in that story because they too wanted freedom and they too felt oppressed. And they felt like if they embraced this God, eventually he would free them. And he did. One of the other topics that I found really interesting in the documentary was sort of literacy and education as a way to kind of break free and, and sort of to defy expectations. I believe the institution of slavery, um, even though it wasn't put together very scholarly or academically, um, what it did very well is it knew that in order to keep African persons inside of that institution, you had to keep them ignorant. Because as soon as they learn how to read or as soon as they learn how to write or enfranchise themselves, they will see or they will figure out how to get out. Anytime that a, an enslaved person had an opportunity to educate themselves, whether or not it was um, sneaking a book and they didn't even know what was on the book, they just knew it was something in there that maybe had something to do with freedom, then they would do it like that. And I think the art, the um, documentary makes a reference of like how sometimes the uh, the master's children and then the children of um, enslaved persons. They were playmates on the plantation because maybe they were only two or three children on the plantation. And so they start to 
trick the Caucasian students into teaching them how to read, and they'll say something like, um, well, can you say my name? And they'll say, of course I can say your name. And then they start to write it down in the sand. Well, can you write my name? And then how do you spell my name? And then the white child being educated will say, yeah, of course I know how to do that. I can write your name. And the black child is saying, now I get it. Now I've, this for the first time in the dirt, I can read my name. And so um, it was a lot, of, uh, a lot of grabbing for literacy that was going on because they saw that that was a key to freedom. And after the war, there's this sort of testimonial from a man who says that he had felt that he had been robbed of this experience of education prior to being freed. So post-war, were there a lot more African-Americans going to school and, and getting an education? Post-war, there were a lot of, there was just a lot of enfranchisement, period. But um, I think that post-war, African-Americans were trying to educate themselves. They were trying to figure out how to read, how to enlighten themselves, right? And so there was a lot of that. I think that the detrimental part, though, is that there was a lot of quasi-slavery in the South, which means that all slaves didn't pick cotton. All slaves were not, you know, planters and all like that. So enslaved persons that actually had trades, the brickmakers, the melders, the silversmiths, and things like that, had they held on to those trades instead of associating those trades with slavery, then they could have realized that there was an impetus to really gain a profit if you kept those trades and used them as an, a tool to make money, as a revenue-generating tool. And they didn't do that because they associated those tools with slavery. And so they do well to eschew those um, trades when in actuality, had they embraced them, they would have been a little bit further off as far as commerce is concerned. One of the things I found really interesting, and I had really actually not thought of it this way before, is that African-Americans thought of it and referred to it as the war to end slavery. But for white people, they were saying, you know, it's a white man's war. So sort of this war is being fought over this group of people who are just starting to gain power, but it's not necessarily like they're an active part in it. I think that, um, and again, I was edu educated at predominantly white institutions in primary school myself. So the way that history is taught in... Um, in school, it is taught to kind of glance over slavery and then not really embrace it because it's such a dark period in American history. But in actuality, at the beginning of the war, it really didn't have a lot to do with slavery. It had more to do with the fact that the North had some specific things that they wanted to do. And the South had a way of life that they were accustomed to and they wanted to keep that way of life. In the middle of the war, Abraham Lincoln realizes that if slavery is over, we can win the war and we can win it quickly. And so he starts to very strategically find out ways to end slavery, specifically in the South. If you notice, he doesn't necessarily end it in the northern states or in the states that don't secede. But he figures out a way to end slavery in the South, which um, turns it into the war about slavery. And so kind of by osmosis, it turns into, we've got to free the slaves. You know? And I, even if they weren't thinking about it at the time, I think it was divinely ordained that this was the war that was going to free slaves. Because certainly the slaves realized it. When they realized that the master was gone because he had died in battle, and the son of the master was gone because he had died in battle, and there, were no, there was no one else left that could physically 
maintain the plantation because there were no men on the plantation to hold them to the plantation. They started, um, slavery started to unravel and rather haphazardly because slaves were freeing themselves. They were just leaving the plantation. And um, they made it the war about slavery because if not, you know, what, after a while, what was the war for if not to enfranchise um, African-American persons to the point where they can have closer to equal rights? So it's not necessarily a question of whose war this was. It's, it's not necessarily whose war it is. Again, I think at the beginning, you'll notice that not only is this not the war of the enslaved person, this is not the war of the poor white person either. This is not the war of the yeoman. This is the war of the enfranchised, land-owning, educated, intelligentsia elite. You know, that was the kind of war that it was. But as the war goes on, it was so much death and devastation that eventually it becomes the war that frees the slaves. This is Chris Williams on 90.7 WFUV, and you're listening to Fordham Conversations. On today's show, we're talking to Fordham professor Clarence Ball about his Emmy Award-winning work on Looking Over Jordan, a documentary about African Americans in the Civil War. I'm not sure of the exact year. Was it 1862 that freedmen were able to start fighting in the war? It was, it was between 1862 and 1863 where they started to, and again, some of these men were technically free, and then some of these men, again, were just walking off the plantation and becoming soldiers. But they, they said that they would allow um, enslaved pers- former enslaved persons to fight on the side of the Union because they needed the numbers. And as a result, they w- are able to really topple the South because the South doesn't let African Americans fight for them until almost a year or two later when they realized that if we don't have the manpower, we're not going to win. And of course it was it was too late for him for them to have made that decision. So for, for freed men who began fighting, were they being used sort of? What did other soldiers think about them? What was the perspective there? I think the most important question is what did the Union think about them? I mean, Abraham Lincoln, who is arguably one of the best presidents in our um, in the American history, he wasn't making that many decisions on on the front line as far as um, who gets paid what, who gets to wear what, who gets to eat, and how often. He wasn't making those smaller decisions, but the um, the officers in the Union Army were making those decisions, who gets preferential treatment, who gets the new uniforms, the new boots, the better food. And so they continued to disenfranchise the um, the former enslaved persons and the, and the black people and the African Americans that are even fighting on their side. But it's such a sense of pride and purpose in fighting, you know, in, in saying that you who were less than human a year ago is now man enough to put on a uniform. I mean, they I don't even think they cared. I think it was like we just want to be involved at some point. And then eventually there are some things that happen to balance the equilibrium between the um the two races in in the war. Were these freedmen fighting? Were they being used sort of as pawns or did it actually, you know, did it make a difference that they were there? Um, certainly, it made a difference because without them fighting, it wouldn't. We would not. The North would not have won the war. So yes, I do believe it made a difference. But did they think they were they were fighting? Yeah, they they thought that they were fighting. I think that there are some wars um, in the Civil War that were fought with such. Um, they were so ferocious in in their fighting. Even if they even if they all died, 
they fought so hard, you know, because it was something that they believed in. It wasn't like, um, well, we're fighting for the landowners whose sons don't have to come and fight this war. I mean, they were fighting like, you know, my wife is down there, my children are down there, and if I win, I can free them. That's that's the kind of uh, tenacity that they brought to war. And so they knew that they were fighting. Now, whether or not um, they were being enfranchised on purpose, that that's a whole other question. I mean, even leading up to the Vietnam War, you have people uh, in Vietnam leaving signs by the African-American soldiers that say, Negro, go home, this is not your war. And so I don't, I don't ever think that it's us in mind when the American when America goes to war. I don't think that for a very long time it was not us in mind. No, it was not. Without freed men fighting, the North wouldn't have won. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Without without freed men um fighting, the North would not have, have won the war at all. Not to mention, um, you have to look at slavery as the cash cow that it was and um there was a scholar on campus about a week ago that was talking about how even the North was making a lot of money with um, slavery by sending their sons to the South to work on slave plantations to make enough money to come back North and get graduate degrees and things like that. I mean, it was so much money to be made from free labor. I mean, can you imagine just free labor? So much money to be made. And so with the free labor, um, when that labor is gone, you know, there's no money. And if you can't fund a war, you can't buy the utensils, you can't buy the guns and the uniforms and the food to feed these people that are fighting, that are weary and tired. And, um, you know, without without them there, because they left the plantation, a lot of them did. I mean, you you can't win. So you've got all of this manpower, and they're getting fed, and they have the money to be able to enfranchise themselves. And then on the, in the South, you just have so much death and devastation because they just can't afford it because they were concentrating and resting on the fact that they were going to continue to have the free labor of the enslaved persons, and it just wasn't there anymore. And Abraham Lincoln was smart enough to disenfranchise them to do that. One of the things that someone, and I forget who exactly said it in the documentary, but it really kind of stuck with me, mm-hmm. is that... If you belong to someone and you ran away, you're kind of stealing yourself. And that, that whole idea of you don't own yourself and you taking charge of yourself would be like stealing. Yeah, it was, a, it was a powerful statement in the documentary when she said that. And I think that even more than stealing yourself, what I think is more painful, and I, and I totally agree with you, by the way, but what I think is more painful is people getting to the point where they had to go steal their children, right? And this is even after the war. Because maybe the master would say, okay, well, um, the war is over, slavery is over, you can leave, right? But you can't take this child because I, I, I'm, I'm still feeding this child. I, I own this child. And so parents would have to come back and free or steal, rather, their own children. That, to me, was um, was worse. Um I can't. I don't even have children. I can't even imagine having to steal my child because I think that my child is owned by some somebody else. And so the issue of ownership is a very serious issue because in order to keep this, the enslaved person disenfranchised, you have to do more than just keep them illiterate. You have to make them believe that they're property. And so the institution of slavery did a very good job of doing that. So after slavery, what was sort of the the mood or the feeling amongst these people who now their whole lives all they had known is over you know where they go from here what are their options 
First of all, the South was pissed, if I, if I can even say pissed on the radio. Their property is being taken from them. It's almost, to them, it was like, you know, you bought a horse and someone took your horse and said, this is my horse now. Or, you know, your horse is free and can go roam around. Or someone putting you out of your house. You bought your house. You know, you paid for it, right? That was their thinking. So that is, is one issue. But going back to the issue of the African-American family... Immediately after the war, there was so much loss in the institution of slavery, specific to the family. Like one person would be sold, or the mother was sold, or the wife, or the the the, the husband, or you know they had jumped the broom together, and then a week later he gets sold because it's more profitable and stuff like that. Um, so much loss in the African American family that immediately after the war, the war, what you see is not only are enslaved, former enslaved persons trying to educate themselves, they're trying to find their family. They're trying to figure out, where, have you seen my mother? And then you have to realize they don't know a name. <laughs> you know, they don't, even know, they don't even know their mother's real name. You know, they don't know their wife's real name or their children's real name. Because when they get to the new plantation, they might get renamed. They're, certainly they'll get a new last name because the last name is whoever the, whoever the slave master is. But whether or not they even have the same first name is, um, is up, up in the air. So if, um, if all you have to go on is, um, I lost my wife and her name is Betty. Have you seen Betty? And you send that to Virginia from Tennessee. I mean, you know, that, that was more important to them, the institution of family and the institution that there was so much loss. So, I mean, some people were able to reunite with their families, but how rare was that? Just thinking about it, I can't imagine that that happened too often, just because it's a very limiting form of communication, especially if someone else is in another state, even. Like, how, how long would it take to find someone? And what are the odds? Well, slim, slim to none um, are, are the odds. Again, this it's not a technological age, so there are no computers, there are no cell phones, there are no, there's no uh, formalized... Um, postage system that can move mail very quickly, um, you know, hopefully by train or by horse, but, you know, who, who's to say that someone has an address? <laughs> the issue with with the family there is it was extremely difficult, extremely difficult to locate a person. And if you did locate a person, you might get all the way to the point where you find out where their new plantation is. And because slavery is over, they might have left. You know, everybody didn't take the sharecropping option, you know. So you get there. You finally get to the end of the road, and you get to the plantation, and they decided to leave. They said, I, I'm, I'm going up north somewhere, and they're, and they're lost forever. You might never find them again. And so um, it was very uncommon that you would find a person where you left them after the war. For African Americans in the, who stayed in the South, what was life like? Did they stay where they had been enslaved before but now maybe for getting paid a little bit of money or I'm not sure how that worked. The way that it worked in a lot of instances were either they were lied to and they were told you still can't leave because that doesn't apply to this state or that doesn't apply to us or whatever. And they you know they were they were ignorant. They didn't know. It was a situation where you would give them an opportunity. You would say, okay, well you can share crop for a while. So 
um, you grow the crops, you do this and that, and because this is my land, I'll take 90%. And then you'll just take 10%, which, you know, after you take the 5% to eat off of, and then you sell whatever you sell, and that's not enough money for you to do anything with. And so, and a lot of them took that option because they just, they weren't ready for for change. And so often the North was associated with getting chased and being being hounded and, um, being being lynched on a whim and that you know it was just so much unknown that the a lot of the slave masters um were able to keep people on the plantation by simply saying i can protect you i can if you stay here you're safe i can feed you i can clothe you you have a place to stay and you can stay with your family because at that point they can't buy or sell anybody so you know it's no more it's no more loss of family a lot of them took that option. So what you'll find is that moving almost into the early 1900s, that a lot of um, a lot of African Americans are only about fifth, outside of a, like a 50 mile radius outside of where the when the war ended, what plantation they were on, their family was on. I imagine a lot of them were homeless and, and hungry. Who helped them? Where did they get help, or how they know where to get help? There were a lot of um, abolitionist groups who decided that there needed to be more help. The U.S. government steps in and does some things. It wasn't as devastating as you as you think it was with respect to they don't have any food and clothes or you know they don't have any shelter or anything like that. I think what you'll find is the opposite. There was a brief period after the war where the North is still deciding how the South is supposed to treat African Americans right before Jim Crow. And you'll see that African Americans were able to be very enfranchised in a short amount of a short amount of time. And when I say very enfranchised, I mean like in the eighteen hundreds, African American US congressional representatives, African American senators, because there were so many black people in the South that they could, you know, find a way to, um, when they finally allowed them to have some type of voting privileges, you know what I mean? They could give them the vote, and then Jim Crow comes, and then they can't vote anymore. (laughs) And they don't get to vote anymore until, you know, later on into the 19th century. So there was a brief period of celebration where everything seems to look up, but the North decides that they're going to let the South take care of their Negroes. And uh, when they do that, then Jim Crow comes, and then all of these things are out of the window again. When you were doing your research, how far after the Civil War did you look into, specifically for the documentary? Um, Specifically for the documentary, we stopped at around um, the 1920s when we were looking into uh, Fisk University and um, other African-American institutions of higher learning where, um, for the first time, not only can blacks read and write, they're in college, and that was a big, that was a huge deal. You know, that was unheard of in the 1800s. So we stopped it about there primarily because one of the scholars that's featured in the documentary, she is a Fiskite, she's a graduate of Fisk, and she spent most of her dissertation research inside of the archives at that institution. And Fisk is the first or second um, historically black college university in the country. And so it was very important for us to look at Fisk, especially since it's in the city of Nashville and um, what it did for the furthering of a people and for the enfranchisement of African-American education. Towards the end of the documentary, there's a piece about the Jubilee Singers. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering if you talk about them a little bit. So um, the Fisk Jubilee Singers were a group of students at Fisk University, and 
while they were there at Fisk University, one of the persons, I believe it was from one of either the abolitionist groups or the Freedmen's Bureau or someone that was helping set up the university, again, these people are not too far removed out, outside of, of slavery. And so what they did at church was sing the Negro spirituals that were sung on the plantation. And so at school, consequently, they're singing Negro spirituals, right? And, you know, this, um, this agreeable uh, white man hears them, and he goes, oh, my God, what, you know, this was beautiful sound. What are, what, are, what are these words? And so he formulates a group, and that group becomes a chorus, and that chorus becomes the Jubilee Singers. And the Jubilee Singers um, travel around the country for a period of time um, just sharing, you know, their experiences, um, either the personal experience from slavery or the parents' experience experiences from slavery. And then Fisk University has some financial trouble. And then when they have the financial trouble, they start touring um, financially, and they raise enough money to build a couple of buildings on campus, travel worldwide. They performed for uh, Queen Elizabeth in um, in England. So the Jubilee Singers have a long and storied history, and they're still an organization that is alive and well to this day. I've actually had an opportunity to see the recent um, Jubilee Singers at the Skirmerhorn Symphony Center in Nashville, Tennessee, and they sound angelic. It's a really good organization, and it's so historic because it's been around since the late 1800s. So on um, March 26th, the uh, STEP program and the C-STEP program, which is housed in the Office of the Provost, is honoring my research and scholarship, um, specifically with the documentary Looking Over Jordan, African Americans in the War. So we're going to be doing a full presentation, a 30-minute presentation of the documentary, and then immediately following the presentation, I'm going to have a 30-minute lecture where I speak about all of the research that is... Um, all of the research that made it onto the editing floor, things that were not included in the documentary. Thanks to Clarence Ball for joining us today. If you're not able to make the screening but still want to see the documentary, visit the Fordham Conversations page at WFUV.org for a link to watch it online. This has been Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. We'll be back next Saturday at 7 a.m. And don't worry if you've missed a show. They're all available to download as a podcast or stream online at WFUV.org. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for all the latest updates from the FOCON team. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.